the last time we went through those elder vows, uh, I was the one that was saying I do uh, to you as a church, and you were uh, saying your part back to me. Uh, what a wonderful encouragement and a sobering moment that was for me in my life. Uh, and I just praise the Lord that we could do that again as a church uh, for our brother David. Uh, and what a blessing he is to the church, and what a joy for us and a privilege uh, to have you serve as an elder brother. Thank you. Uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 2. Galatians 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses uh, of the chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you'll find our text on page 972. Page 972. Uh, the book of Galatians is actually a letter written to churches, Christian churches, by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he is pleading with them not to abandon the gospel message that he preached for them, not to abandon the message he preached for another gospel. And he's quick to clarify that there's only one true gospel. It's not that there is another gospel. Uh, but they, the Galatians, or Christians in Galatia, are being tempted to believe a different message of salvation, one that distorts the message of Jesus. He says that clearly in chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, he then also says in verse 8, not to accept such message, uh, no matter who the preacher is. Uh, and he says, even if I myself come or an angel of heaven preaches a message contrary to the one I did, uh, they are to reject it. Uh, Paul then reassures them that he is not, in his instructions, trying to please man. Uh, how could he be? If he were trying to please man, then he would not be a servant of Christ. He would be working against Christ. Well, if you're new to the Bible, the uh, chapter numbers, uh, so Galatians 2, chapter divisions, and then the verse numbers inside of them, uh, those were added later. Paul didn't write those in as he wrote the letter. So from chapter 2, even though we're starting a new chapter, we're jumping back into the middle of his argument here. Uh, Paul's in the middle of an argument, and he's making the case that the gospel he preached to them was directly given to him by God. Therefore, it's not a message of man that he invented, or any man invented. Uh, he says clearly in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that it's not man's gospel, but God's. So up to this point, Paul has argued that the gospel he preached, the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus, is the authoritative message given to him by God to preach to others. What Paul turns to next gives us insight. Uh, insight into what these false teachers or opponents uh, are teaching. I'll go ahead and just give you the answers before we read the text. I think it's just easier that way uh, so that you know what to look for. These false teachers were promoting what I like to call a faith plus law gospel. A faith plus law gospel. Uh, that is, you not only have to believe in Jesus to be saved, uh, you were also required uh, to adhere to the Mosaic law. Uh, they were requiring Gentiles who had become Christians to be circumcised. And it's likely the case that they said Paul was not a real apostle, uh, or that at least his message had been influenced by men. Uh, Paul's already defended his own calling, but in these verses, he doubles down on the fact that the gospel does not require law observance and that the other apostles 
meaning the disciples of Jesus, had no reservations about his ministry. Uh, In fact, they actually encouraged him in it. So with all that in mind, let's read our passage together now. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Uh, Basically, these verses describe Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, uh, where he met briefly with a few of the apostles. He explains this to the Galatians to communicate that God's gospel is a message of grace, not influenced by man. Uh, That's what I would call the summary or the main idea of this passage. God's gospel is a message of grace, not influenced by man. A grace meaning a gift bestowed to us apart from anything we do, uh, i.e. law observance. But there are three important things that I want to draw your attention to in this text. Three important things about the gospel uh, that I think contribute to that summary that I provided. The first thing is that the gospel never contradicts itself. The gospel never contradicts itself. Nothing is more confusing than a contradictory message. Uh, Not only are they confusing, but they're sometimes just outright deceptive. Uh, And I think just about anyone can relate to the frustration of being on the receiving end of, uh, uh, of a contradictory message. Uh, We tend to call it false advertising, Uh, false advertising, Uh, misleading messages. They come in the form of things like promotions uh, that appear to have no strings attached whatsoever. And then what do you come to find out eventually? There's this tiny little writing somewhere, usually that Tyler says he just scrolls right past and clicks agree to. Uh, But usually somewhere there's some kind of fine print. The uh, most obvious example for me, I'm just most familiar with because of my employment history, uh, is just the whole free phone thing. Every carrier has a free phone. They've got like a buy one, get one deal every time phones come out. Uh, And really, when you start to read the terms, what you find out is 
If you want the phone for free, usually they require you to be a customer for a certain number of years or something like that, uh, or add a new line or something like that. Uh, there are terms. There is a fine print. That might be a little bit like what the Judaizers are telling the Gentile Christians in Galatia. Paul preached a gospel message of grace to them, freely offering salvation and peace with God to all who believe in Jesus, forgiveness of sin for anyone who turns away from their sinful lifestyle and puts their trust in Christ alone. And then along came these new teachers, informing them that there was, in fact, fine print to the gospel. That fine print being that they had to be circumcised. Uh, circumcision was a sign given to the Jewish people uh, in the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, to mark them out as a people group distinct from the rest of the nations in the world. Uh, it, it was first given to Abraham with a promise of descendants as vast as the stars, but was required by law at Mount Sinai. Now, it's safe to assume these teachers were saying you had to adhere uh, if they were saying you had to adhere to one area of the law, they were likely saying you had to subject yourself to the whole law, obligation to obey it all. Now, for Jews, circumcision was just part of their identity, part of their religion as a people group, their identification. Naturally, Jews that became Christians, though, didn't have to think about this issue because they would have already been circumcised uh, in their youth. But when Gentiles started becoming Christians as the gospel went out, uh, they had to figure out, what do we do with these Gentile converts? To require them to submit to the law after Christ, though, misunderstands the purpose of the law as well as the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Allow me just to briefly explain both of those things. Uh, the purpose of the law, first off. The purpose of the law was to, to establish a kingdom of God's people. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, meaning a nation through which God revealed himself to the rest of the world. The law, therefore, governed their worship, their lifestyle, their morals, in order to demonstrate God's character to the rest of the world. But because God is holy, he cannot dwell among a sinful people. So included in the law uh, were laws about making them ritually or ceremonially clean, usually involving sacrifice of some kind. Uh, the entire book of Leviticus is dedicated to spelling out all of these laws uh, so that God could dwell among his people. Uh, but these sacrifices were only temporary measures uh, for Israel's atonement uh, during that time. The law was never a permanent solution, but it teaches us our need for a greater deliverance. Uh, if it weren't for the law, we wouldn't know how sinful we really are, how desperately we need to be redeemed, and especially some kind of a permanent, lasting redemption. The prophets in the Old Testament called it an everlasting covenant uh, when Israel was exiled. So that's the purpose of the law. Secondly, the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Christ came as the fulfillment of the law. The law and the prophets both speak of an everlasting covenant uh, through the son of David, one who will write the law on our hearts, who himself will bear our iniquities and transgressions. That's the language used in Isaiah 53. Jesus' life is so valuable and precious and innocent that his sacrifice is able to cleanse us from all our sins. 
The blood of goats and bulls can never atone for us. That's what Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, verse 4. But Christ's blood can. The blood of goats and bulls only foreshadowed the greatest sacrifice. Christ's death did not put us back into subjection under the law, but freed us from it. His coming ushered a new era in history. The everlasting kingdom of God is no longer defined by law observances, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, to require the law means to disregard Jesus. It is to assume his death is not sufficient, that more work is required from us. Now, Paul will explain at the end of chapter 2 that the law never justified in the first place. But for now, what you need to know is that to require adherence to the law, like circumcision, is to add to the gospel. It is distorting it to a different message. If law observance is required for salvation, then we are not saved by grace through our faith. We are saved by grace through our faith plus our obedience to the law. Uh, This would be a contradiction to the gospel that uh, Jesus, uh, that Paul preached about Jesus, rather. Uh, Friends, works are not something we do to change our status or to gain the favor of God. Works are something that we do because of the change that has occurred in us already. As we see in the first three verses, uh, there's no disagreement with the other apostles. Uh, Paul has already stated that he didn't need his gospel to be vetted out by them. Uh, That's why he didn't go to them initially. Uh, He ministered for uh, uh, three years and then visited only Peter, but it doesn't seem like the reason for the visit was to vet out his gospel. But even after that 15-day visit, Paul goes another 14 years before returning, uh, ministering to Gentile areas. If he lacked confidence about the truth or the genuineness of his message, uh, he wouldn't have ministered over a decade before coming back to Jerusalem to check with the other apostles. Uh, at the end of verse 2, it's a little confusing. Uh, it's possible to think that Paul might have been questioning his gospel or perhaps insecure about his message. Um, but that simply can't be the case. Nothing that Paul has said up to this point uh, should make us think that. Uh, he tells us exactly what caused him to go to Jerusalem at the beginning of verse 2. He says he went because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. So Paul, on his own accord, did not feel the need to go. And he didn't feel the need to go for 14 years at least, uh, possibly more. But he received a revelation. Uh, That revelation could mean a vision, could mean a dream, could mean he heard the Lord tell him to go. We don't exactly know what it looked like. Uh, I think this account correlates with Acts 11, which means... Uh, God gave a a vision to Agabus, who then told Paul and then caused Paul to go to Jerusalem. Uh, That seems most likely. But whatever the case, uh, it's clear that Paul felt compelled by a divine uh, voice to go to Jerusalem. He felt directed by God very clearly to have this meeting with the apostles, to share his gospel with them. Uh, So what does Paul mean then? when he says that he wanted to make sure he was not running in vain or had not run in vain. It makes the most sense uh, that Paul is simply speaking pragmatically here. Uh, It's clear Paul doesn't put a lot of weight on what other men say about his gospel. 
uh, no matter who they are. But practically, if the apostles from Jerusalem did say that Paul was preaching a different gospel, uh, then it would have caused a lot of problems. Uh, it, a lot of his ministry would have been in vain in the sense that uh, Christians would be tempted to just uh, turn away from what he had taught them and instead to listen to the Jerusalem apostles. Uh, if they disagreed, we might be tempted to think the gospel contradicts itself or that God contradicts his own message if they both were claiming to be apostles. But the whole point is made clear in verse 3. Look at, that, look at that verse again with me. He says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is the whole point of Paul bringing up this meeting. He says, I met with at least three of the apostles. And after explaining my gospel to them, the one that I've been preaching, they had no objections. They didn't even object to Titus, who I brought with me, who was a Greek. Uh, Further down in verse 6, Paul makes it even more clear that these influential figures didn't add anything to his gospel. More than that, they recognized the very same power at work in Paul's ministry as with Peter's. They saw the same source of the message, God himself. So they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Friends, the gospel is not contradictory. Uh, Paul's warning to the Galatians is that to preach salvation by grace through faith plus anything is a contradiction. Uh, It's not the same as the one true gospel The one true gospel says, depend not on your own works, but on the work of Christ. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? A few things. First, when you struggle with assurance, go back to the gospel. When you struggle with assurance, go back to the gospel. Uh, Because this is where we have a hard time believing this truth in practice. Uh, We can question our faith when, or our salvation when our faith is weak. We doubt God's love or His patience for us when we sin. Is that not because we are putting too much weight on our own works? It must be on some level that we believe salvation is not completely in God's hands, but in our own, since we believe we have the ability to work ourselves out of God's grace. My word of encouragement to you sounds negative, at first, but it's this. You're never as good as you thought you were. You're never as good as you thought you were. You've always been as unworthy as you feel in your lowest or worst moments. If you, can, if you think that you can work your way out of God's saving grace, then you've misunderstood the gospel in the first place. You were never chosen because you were a good candidate for salvation by any measure. None of us are. God chose you because he loves you. And God loves you because he loves you. It's as simple as that. Do you require more of yourself then than Jesus did? He does not call us to perfection, brothers and sisters. He calls us to repentance. The second thing we can apply to our own lives is this. Forgive others. You probably know the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus says, he's modeling prayer for them, and he says, forgive us our debts uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The assumption is that Christians are always to forgive, and the reason is because we have been forgiven. It's a contradiction, however, 
when we as Christians withhold forgiveness from another, and yet we claim God's forgiveness for ourselves. So Christian, how are you doing forgiving others? How are you doing forgiving your spouse uh, when you get in a disagreement with them, or when you speak impatiently or harshly towards one another? How are you doing forgiving your parents for the, the mistakes they made in raising you? Don't let your faith and practice contradict the message you know to be true. Christians forgive others. The second thing I want you to see in this passage uh, comes as an implication from the first point, and that is that the gospel never enslaves. The gospel never enslaves. I see this in verses 4 and 5. Paul's having a private meeting with these three pillars, Peter, James, and John, most likely James, the brother of Jesus, mentioned earlier in the book. And at some point, these false teachers that Paul's concerned about slip into the meeting and listen in. They sneak in secretly in order to listen to what Paul has to say, in order to, quote, spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 4, and he tells us the reason why they were spying on them. He says, quote, so that they might bring us into slavery. What does, gospel, or what does Paul mean by saying that their gospel means to bring them into slavery? He uses similar language in other writings of his, most notably in Romans 4 and 5, to show that righteousness or true pardon from sin, justification for, before God does not come from the law and never has. He points to Abraham uh, before the law was even given and shows that God declared him righteous because of his faith. The law did not save, it exposed. It does not justify, it teaches us to rely on God to do so. Uh, to continue to live under the law, therefore, is not freedom at all, it is slavery because we'd still be obligated to do everything that we really don't have the ability to carry out. We could try. We could do our best. Some would do better than others, perhaps. But in the end, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot live perfectly any more than we can fly. It's just simply not in our nature, because our nature is sinful. Circumcision was always meant to reflect the importance of an inner changed heart. From the very beginning, God commends Israel to circumcise their hearts. Paul emphasizes this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Christ came to free us from our sin, to free us from the law, because the law condemns us for our sin. Uh, if you think you are not a sinner or not such a bad sinner, just go through the Ten Commandments and see how you do. Uh, if you still think you've done okay, then go on over to Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and see how you do there. The law reveals our need for a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. We need the law written on our hearts, not tablets of stone. 
This is the language of the prophets. We need to be reborn because we are dead in our sins. But friends, the good news of Jesus is that his death and his resurrection secure our justification. We can actually be declared innocent before God because Christ absorbed the punishment for our sins. We no longer need the law because Jesus is much greater than the law, and he's the one who saved us. Therefore, to preach the good news of Jesus' coming, to preach repentance and faith, and then go back to law observance is not real freedom at all, friends. Uh, We don't obey God's commands because we have to. Uh, We obey them because we are free to now in Christ. To preach repentance and faith and go back to the law is not freedom. It is not a higher form of enlightenment. It's counterproductive. It's to distort the gospel. And notice how strongly Paul feels about this as he calls his proponents false brothers in chapter 4. When the gospel is challenged directly, notice too that Paul does not budge. Uh, Friends, the message of the gospel should be for us as Christians a non-negotiable. We should not tolerate uh, anything less or more. Uh, It's absolutely crucial for our faith. Paul says at the very end of the chapter that if righteousness were of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Uh, Paul does not yield to these false teachers so he can preserve the gospel for the Galatians. He preserves the good of the good news that in Christ there is freedom and not slavery. So what's the application for us in these verses? Defend the gospel gracefully. Defend the gospel gracefully. If you find all of this law and gospel talk confusing, you're not alone. Uh, Paul is not just firing off arrows at naive believers, though, or humble Christians who would otherwise be teachable. So there is a lesson for us as Christians today when our kind of gospel plus senses start to kick in and we feel someone is changing the gospel in the way they articulate it, don't just blast them on social media. Uh, Don't confront them in front of others and call them heretics. These teachers, Paul says, are like spies. Their motives appear to be to steer Christians away from the gospel. They're wolves. If anyone had a right to be brash to them, it was the Apostle Paul sent from Jesus himself. But he doesn't even do that. He writes a letter to the Galatians, encouraging them. He seeks a private audience with the leaders of the church to lay his gospel out before them, to see if their gospel, the gospel that they preach, align with his. We must be gracious and careful not to assume too quickly what we do not know. The third thing I want you to see from this passage is that the gospel never discriminates. The gospel never discriminates. I see this mostly in the last four verses, uh, verses 6 through 10, as Paul describes the responses of the other apostles. Uh, He switches back and forth between calling them uh, by their names, Peter or Cephas, that's the same person. Uh, It's just uh, Cephas is an Aramaic name. And uh, calling them the influential ones. 
The reason he does that is for what he says in verse 6. That parenthetical comment where he says it doesn't matter who they are to him. Uh, This is Paul's way of saying it doesn't matter to me that they're apostles. It doesn't really matter to me that they have influence. Uh, Paul went to them because he had a revelation, and practically, though, uh, they are the primary teachers in Jerusalem. Uh, The churches in the area would look to them for guidance. Uh, So Paul goes to the leaders to lay out his gospel, but he's been preaching to the Gentiles, like the Galatian churches. And because he doesn't need their support, he intentionally draws attention away from their positions as apostles or their even names. And notice the reason he says he doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, what they are. God shows no partiality. Now, this is the first sense in which the gospel does not discriminate. No matter who the position of the person is speaking, no matter the influence of the man or the woman, and sometimes we have a hard time believing this uh, in our lives as well, don't we? Because there are amazing people out there incredibly intelligent people, influential people who don't believe in God. And that's persuasive to us. Uh, There are people who have incredible influence, who are incredible at loving and showing compassion on others, but they don't believe in hell. They're perhaps well-respected leaders uh, that we don't want to admit at times have a, a fuzzy gospel. We either fear what others will think of us if we voice disapproval, or we are afraid to admit ourselves that they might be wrong and we might be right. Uh, Humility is good. But did you know that Paul, as influential as he was, was not a very attractive person? Uh, I always imagine Paul as strong, well-built, a stern brow, confident and eloquent in his preaching. Uh, I get that from his letters. It makes me feel like he is an incredible preacher. But as critics, we learn in 2 Corinthians, uh, say that's not the case. They say that while his letters are strong, his bodily presence was weak and his speech of no account. Apparently, Paul wasn't as good live as he was on paper. But how a man speaks or his appearance or his influence does not gain him any standing before God. Only the gospel does. We confuse things like influence and popularity, gifting with what really matters, the truth of God's word. Uh, I once uh, worked at a retail store and often talked with a coworker who was not a Christian. And uh, he knew that I was a Christian, and so he would often ask me questions about my faith. And one day, he came up to me and he said, uh, I was listening to your guy the other day. And I was like, what is he talking about? Who is my guy? He said, yeah, I'm listening to your guy, Joel Osteen. And uh, my reaction was similar to yours, I'm guessing. I had kind of a nervous chuckle. I was humored uh, and yet uh, a little bit concerned at the same time because uh, I consider Joel Osteen uh, to preach a message contrary to what Paul preaches. His voice is steady, if you've ever watched him. His enunciation is impeccable. Uh, He is charming, smiles big, makes lots of eye contact. I wish I had his gifting when it comes to speaking. Always dressed in a suit, fills a stadium full of people, including some celebrities. 
And his prominence or his influence makes it hard to say something negative about him. But friends, he's a man. And he preaches what I would call a gospel of positivity. His gospel is one of happy thoughts with Jesus slapped on like a label. He's vague in generalizing the gospel at times. It makes it easier for people to convince themselves that they love Jesus when they really just love having a blessed life, which usually means no negative energy in your life, just peaceful and positive thoughts. Now, he does say some true and biblical things, so for whatever he does say is true, I want to praise the Lord for that. But I find it deeply troubling and concerning that so many people uh, listen to him claim to preach the word of God and yet he doesn't teach to them the plain gospel. But friends, the gospel is so much better than that. The gospel addresses real issues. It addresses the sin behind the evil in every one of our hearts. It provides real assurance of forgiveness because it doesn't depend on us, but on Christ. It addresses real justice, real and lasting punishment of sin, and at the same time, real pardon from sin. God is so good that he will send sinners rightly to hell. But he's also merciful, desiring that none should perish. And so he gave up his son as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners to be saved, ransomed by his blood. The gospel does not discriminate. In its content of the message, it is authoritative. It is the content of the message that saves, not the messenger. We Christians protect the gospel by requiring the same kind of scrutiny for all who stand up and claim to preach the word of God, that they do not preach a gospel contrary to the one that we received, the same one that Paul preaches along with the other apostles, the one that they received from Christ himself. Paul says that the influential ones didn't add anything to him. They didn't need to. And the same could be said for Christians today. I'm not saying we can't learn from others. We certainly can. The Lord gives good teachers and gifts to the church. But insofar as what they teach, it must never be something that we can't find in the Bible for ourselves. If they depend on another source like Muhammad's writings or Joseph Smith's writings or Buddha or if they rely on their own visions or spiritual experiences, let us judge them by the gospel that we know to be handed down from God to the apostles to us in the scriptures, inspired by his spirit. When a man like a pope considers his own word on par with the authority of scripture, or when a priest considers himself to be a mediator, when we know there's only one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, then the gospel has been changed. I don't say these things out of a lack of love, friends. I have dear, dear friends who profess all of the religions I just mentioned. I love them too much to want them or you to be deceived. But by preaching the true gospel, we hold out freedom from slavery to man-made gospels. Remember what Jesus' rebuke was to the Pharisees requiring the traditions of washing on the Sabbath. He said they, they place the traditions of man higher than the commands of God. Uh, 
The apostles didn't just confirm Paul had the gospel right. They recognized that God had been at work in his life in the same way that God had been at work in Peter's life. That's amazing to consider. Just as Peter preached to Jews, Paul preached to Gentiles. The same message with the same results, people turning from their sins and putting their faith in Christ, picking up their cross and following Jesus. Paul explains that the same God is behind both his work and the other apostles, emphasizing what we already said in point one, that the gospel is not contradictory. For the false teachers to discredit Paul's gospel and his ministry, they must do the same for the other apostles as well, which I doubt that they were actually willing to do. So far I've spoken a lot about identifying false gospels, but we shouldn't move past this text without recognizing the fellowship and unity that comes with those who agree on the gospel. Look again at verse 9. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I'm guessing they didn't say, Hey, as you go about your ministry, make sure you circumcise those Gentiles. Their agreement in the gospel caused them to praise God for His grace in their lives. They thanked God for how He had worked through each of them to different groups of people. So they gave Him the right hand of fellowship, which is not a secret uh, apostle handshake uh, or anything like that. Uh, There's not a secret order that He joined by doing that. It just simply means they considered Him a brother. Uh, They considered Him to be on the same side. Fellow apostle called by God to preach the same message that they were preaching, a defender of the faith. So they encourage him to continue his ministry to the Gentiles. And I think uh, this is a wonderful detail. Because if you think about Paul's testimony from chapter 1, it'd be hard to think of anyone who would be a better recruit, a better hire for the church at Jerusalem than the converted Pharisee. Uh, Paul, who himself was uh, advanced beyond others his age, was zealous for the traditions of the Jews, now preaching Christ and freedom from the law. If I was in the Jerusalem church, I'd be like, Paul, have you considered staying here with us? Minister to the other Jews. But the three pillars recognized the way that God had already called him to the Gentiles. I'm sure he communicated his perception of his call to the uncircumcised. And then they had Titus right there to see the fruit of his labor. A real live person who had accepted the grace of Christ standing before them. So they sent him out with joy. Here's another sense that the gospel does not discriminate. Not only in its teachers, but in its hearers as well. The one thing that Jerusalem apostles tell Paul... At the end of our verses, verse 10 is a beautiful detail. They ask Paul to remember the poor. Remember the poor. Considering the hostility historically between Jews and Gentiles, it's a beautiful example of love and unity that comes from the gospel. Jewish Christians desire for the Gentiles to be cared for and not overlooked, even the least of them. The gospel is not just for the wealthy or the privileged, for the Jews or for the middle class. It's for all people. Paul will say in the next chapter, 
Uh, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Historically, uh, Christians have cared for the poor really well uh, when no one else would. But it remains an application for us today uh, to care for those who might be more in need uh, than we are. One commentator summed up this message well, this passage, uh, by saying that uh, recently in the last hundred years, it seems, uh, liberal Christians are so concerned about helping the poor that they forget to preach the gospel. But modern evangelicals are so concerned with preaching the gospel that they forget to take care of the poor. That's a good reminder for us. Brother and sister, do you look for opportunities to care for those less fortunate than you? Do you look for opportunities to minister to the poor? Are you holding out the hope of Jesus to them? I think that's certainly what the apostles have in mind here. But if he, even if it is practical measures, you'll find that Paul's life already attests to that, the fact that he cares for the poor. Uh, if, in fact, this visit to Jerusalem correlates to Acts 11, which I think it does, then the reason, another reason for Paul's visit, in addition to the vision, was to carry uh, a financial gift to those in need in Jerusalem. Paul was already caring for the poor. The application for us, much more simply, seek gospel unity with others and don't forget the poor. Seek gospel unity with others And don't forget the poor. Christians can be assured from Galatians 2 uh, that the gospel is a message of grace. The implications for us today are that we must not add or subtract anything to the word of God. That our God is true and cannot lie. That the integrity of the message that we confessed at the beginning of our service has been practiced and preserved for us by the apostles and Christians throughout all history. Why is this important? Uh, This whole disagreement between the Judaizers in Galatia is important because if we accept man-made changes to the gospel, we will not be left with saving faith, but damning faith. We will have distorted the gospel. Rather than having faith in God through Christ, we will have faith in ourselves, in our own ideas and desires, we will be slaves to a different gospel, and we ourselves will be accursed. You might be wondering, why must we be so precise and rigid with our understanding? Isn't it rigid? Isn't there any room for other interpretation? On secondary matters, certainly. But God has been clearest about the most important things. And what is most clear in the New Testament is that faith in Christ saves by grace. Faith does not simply mean belief. Let me remind you what faith means. Faith means reliance or trust. If you rely on or trust in anything other than the finished work of Christ, then I submit to you that whatever else you have faith in is an addition Or perhaps it's the influence of man. Perhaps that's your own desires, 
or your own insecurities. But whatever the case, we must remember that God's gospel is a message of grace, not influenced by man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory for the salvation that you have worked in us. We give you praise because in love you set your heart on us. You set your Son to be our substitute. You revealed yourself to us in your word. We are the recipients of your grace. And so we give you praise. Lord, we pray that we would guard the gospel, hold it close to our hearts, and that we would love you more because of it. Help us to be good stewards, carers for the poor because of it. Let us be gracious to others, standing on your word alone and not on the influence of man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.